Right, so Jesus is, um, at this point in the reading, he's in Jerusalem. Uh, We celebrate or observe Palm Sunday when he comes to Jerusalem next week. Um, But apparently we're skipping ahead because that's how the lectionary is going today. Uh, so he is. He he comes to Jerusalem. He kind of goes over the Mount of Olives, and when uh, you get to the top, apparently I've never been there. You can kind of see the holy city sort of unveil itself, and the prominent feature in that skyline would have been the temple. It's uh, kind of the reason why they're there. Uh, this was uh, a week away from Pesach or Passover when uh, they uh, would celebrate that God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. It's like their foundational thing. It's the most holy of days, uh, or weeks rather. So Jesus would have been amongst not just his disciples, but a whole bunch of pilgrims. And as uh, they were among pilgrims who were all going to the holy city to celebrate Passover, uh, one of the things they would do was sing. Uh, One of uh, the psalms that they would sing would have been Psalm 118. It's all about victory, how they were in trouble from the nations and God rescued them. It's about uh, going up to the uh, horns of the altar, like going into the temple. It would include, uh, or it does include, certain phrases or, or verses like, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which, if you don't remember is exactly what his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were saying when they were waving palm branches and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. They didn't invent that. It's straight from Psalm 118. And in fact, there's more in Psalm 118 later uh, talking about uh, waving branches in victory and going up to the altar and meeting God in his temple. Like, all of this is swirling around while Jesus is riding on a donkey, kind of an obvious indication um, of royalty. And then Jesus sees the city, and he sees the temple, and he bursts into tears. And he says, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had known the things that make for peace, And then to paraphrase, he says, but that way is shut. And they're going to come in and they're going to tear you apart. Because uh, this whole time, Jesus has been saying that for his people, if they do not give up this strain of violent nationalism, It is going to lead to war with Rome, and they are going to lose badly. And Jesus, of course, was 100% correct. Within the next generation, exactly that happens. The temple is destroyed, the city is leveled, and Jesus, as a prophet, was vindicated. So Jesus, after bursting into tears, he goes into Jerusalem And he enters the temple, the most holy place in the holy city. It is the center of worship if you were a first century Jewish person. 
And this is where he, you know, overturns the, the money uh, tables and, and, and so on. And there's a, a lot of, I guess, misinformation about that moment. Like, yes, the, the money changers were, you know, exchanging money to use something that was a little more appropriate to be used in the temple. And there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, speculation saying, well, maybe they were ripping people off. And that's why Jesus put a stop to it. And he, you know, overturns the tables and said, you know, it's written, my father's house will be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Um, that's, there's probably some truth to that. Um, I know it's weird to think of like bankers ripping people off. That never happens. Um, but it's, it, it really isn't just that. It, when Jesus does something like that, in fact, when all the prophets do something like that. It's a small thing, but it's meant to point you to something else. Uh, at this time, and actually for a while before, and it would continue, the temple had become very corrupt and very wealthy, which again, I know is weird to think of like corruption and extreme wealth together, because that never happens either. Um, in fact, the temple had, had become to function a lot like a bank, and not in a good sense. In fact, the temple had become uh, a, a, an instrument of economic injustice. Now, we're going to just pause that there. If you want to hear more about that and how Palm Sunday plays into that, Pastor's Bible Study today at 9.45 after, we're going to get into that. But if you want to get out of this service on time, we're just going to have to leave that be. Suffice it to say, what Jesus did as a prophet was condemn the temple for being corrupt. And I think it was pretty clear what Jesus was doing here by this demonstration, because the, the, the question that the leaders of the temple ask him is not, what are you doing? How dare you think that you could do that? Instead, they ask, where do you get the authority to do that? In other words, they catch immediately what he's doing. Because everybody knew, by the way, that when Messiah comes, one of the things that he will do is reform the temple. And God's presence will fill the temple in a very special way, like in the days of old. So they catch exactly what Jesus is doing. The problem is that if Jesus is right, and he really is the prophet and the one to come, then that does not bode well for those who are in charge and who are part of the problem in the first place. So Jesus answers them in kind of a very clever, cryptic way, but he basically explains to them why uh, he has the authority to do that. And then that finally leads us to our parable today. It's the parable of the vineyard. And this, which is strange for, G for Jesus' parables, is actually fairly clear. The vineyard planted is Israel. It's God's chosen people. And he would occasionally send prophets 
to collect, so to speak, the, the yield of fruit. And what is the fruit? The fruit are, are the, the works of God's law, the works of Torah. Not that they're like necessarily earning God's favor, but, but the, the works that God commands his people to do ought to do good things to the rest of the world. And yet he would send a prophet who would kind of get a lay of the land and realize my people are failing miserably. And then for their trouble, the prophets would be beaten and, and treated terribly. So uh, Jesus explains, this happened a bunch of times. And then finally, I'll send my son. Here we have Jesus actually referring to himself as the son of God. And then he's, well, he, he calls it, Immediately, he says, then they kill him, which is a little weird because that hasn't happened yet, but in about a week, that's going to make a lot of sense. Now, if you catch it, the chief priests and the scribes, so like leaders basically, they realize that he is telling this story about them. But if you go back a minute, right before they kind of catch it, Jesus says, uh, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118, verse 22. That's not a coincidence. They were just singing that. And then he talks about this stone that comes and everyone falls on it, they're crushed. And if it falls on them, they're crushed. Well, it seems like the best explanation for what Jesus is saying there comes from another prophet named Daniel in chapter 2, where he describes this huge rock that is not cut by human hands. And it comes and it shatters everything and stands in its place. And it's like a mountain that fills the earth. And sure enough, we have other Jewish writing from the first century that say that, that's Messiah. Jesus is actually being uncharacteristically clear about who he is. And so, the, the temple leaders do the obvious thing. They try to kill him. Because Jesus is here actually confronting the powerful. And I, if you know people, you would know that people don't like to lose power and authority and wealth. Which kind of leads to like the main point I want to talk about today. Like Everything that contributes to Jesus' death has kind of like three layers of meaning. It's like meaning just from a, a standpoint of literature. The, the Gospels are literature. They're, they're stories. They're, they're books. And so it kind of moves the plot along. It has a historical meaning. Like these are the events that get Jesus killed when he is, has made himself very clearly against the temple leadership. Historically speaking, those are the things that lead to people killing him. And then finally, like a deeper theological meaning. I'm convinced that everything that leads directly and indirectly to Jesus' death 
speaks to something about the human heart. Because when Jesus dies for our sins, he dies as the result of the sins of people, but he also dies for our sins in a cosmic sense. So that leads to the question, what are we talking about in this moment? Well, things would have gone a lot better if these temple leaders who had to be smart and they had to know the scriptures well, if they could have taken a step back and simply asked, are we the bad guys in this story? Things would have gone very different. There's a hilarious, um, it's like a, a British comedy team, and, and there, there's a, a just a, a brilliant sketch where they're dressed basically like Nazi SS troops and there's like skulls on their helmets and stuff like that. And one guy turns to the other and he's kind of looking around and goes, hey, are we the bad guys? I mean, we have skulls on our helmets. That doesn't give me a lot of confidence here. Have you, have you ever been in a situation where... You're, you're in an argument, you're in some kind of conflict, and suddenly you have that like blood drained from your face moment and you realize you're wrong. Why is it so hard to admit that? What do you lose? What do we lose by admitting that? We have this natural inclination to protect ourselves. And protect this image that we have about ourselves. Because somewhere deep in the human heart, we want to assume that we are perfect. And it's everybody else that's wrong. So, sometimes, in fact often, the best way through conflict is actually developing the ability to recognize where you're responsible for that conflict. Now, there's another catch there. Because sometimes, it's easy to say, yeah, exactly, if they would just recognize what they are responsible for, that's not what I'm saying. That's not how this works. Priestly leaders of the temple continue to start, uh, or they start sending spies to catch Jesus in saying something, or uh, to catch Jesus as he says something wrong, implying that they're having a hard time finding things that are indicated, or they're having a hard time finding him say something wrong. That should have been a flag. Maybe it was, but they ignored it. So I want to ask you for a moment. What are your flags? At what point can you find yourself, or do you find yourself in a conflict? Maybe if you're married, I've heard theoretically that that can produce conflict. It's just <laughs> hypothetical. I'm a... I'm super hypocritical for bringing this up. 
because I like to be right and I'm good with words. It's not a fun combination. Um, but at, at what point can you see that maybe what I've brought to the table has encouraged this conflict? At what point am I looking for something to just kind of hook in? I'm going to focus on that because I can be right about that. Or at what point maybe your group, your constituency, your political party, your whatever, your denomination, you're, you're convinced that you have the sum total of truth and the way to go. And it's just them that are wrong and therefore we're going to conflict and point out that they're wrong. Well, just by sheer virtue of the fact that you're human and a group of humans means that that's not true. So I'm just going to let that float out there because I can't answer any of these questions for you. I can answer them for me and I kind of already have publicly, which is weird. But... If those chief priests in that moment had the maturity to say, what if I'm the bad guy here? Things could have been very, very different. But they didn't. And instead, they become another part of Jesus in a very eerie sort of way drawing all human evil to himself. He, he becomes like a magnet. And some of our darkest inclinations, those dark secrets, those dark tendencies that we all have as human beings seem to all just kind of flow towards him including that self-protective inability to say that I'm wrong, that, that way that we just want to continue to conflict. We, we want, in a weird way, that violence because it's so much better than me just realizing that I have messed up. Well, that all gets funneled onto Jesus and it crushes him. All of human evil expends everything it has on Jesus. And he called himself this rock that shatters everything, but for a moment that doesn't seem to be the case. Until God raises him from the dead, and then suddenly all the sum total of evil that is funneled towards Jesus no longer has the last word. And a new reality is created. And in fact, that prophet Daniel was absolutely right. Everything else is crushed and will be crushed before Jesus. And the thing that remains, humans made perfect by the same spirit and power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is your reality as well. It can be deeply, deeply difficult to admit wrong, to ask, eh, maybe, wait, am I the bad guy here? But in a new resurrection reality, 
my identity is not tied up in my rightness or my righteousness or my goodness or anything else that I have to offer God, but actually my identity is tied up in Jesus, the one who slayed death and evil himself. Amen.